Welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland, and this time on our investigation into the future of the gig economy, we're talking about what's helping to change it for people in a tough job market and also ethical alternatives to popular sharing economy platforms. Jackie Alexander from Monash Art Design and Architecture tells us about how a local community is fighting back against the sharing economy platforms using an ethical spin on the old model. Nathaniel de Jong, who's just 19, wears many hats, is a commerce and global studies undergraduate student at Monash University. He's also an entrepreneur, mentor, fundraiser and employment educator. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Australia's youth unemployment rate rose up to 14.5%, prompting Nathaniel to run $90,000 worth of subsidised programs to support global youth education and retraining. Here's Nathaniel. Hey, I'm Nathaniel Jiang. I'm an educator and designer at Heart and the CEO at Future Minds Network. So we've actually been able to work with 11,000 youth to unlock their endless creativity through startups whilst practicing skills for future employment. Nathaniel Dion, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, apart from having the great esteem of being one of my students, you're also a very busy, busy 19-year-old. You're involved in a million things. You've started a million things. Tell us, what do you do? I think the way that I would describe myself is an educator Mm -hmm. um, and a community builder. So I'm the CEO of Future Minds Network. Um, So we've been really lucky to have worked with 11,000 youth to really unlock their endless creativity through startups whilst practicing skills for future employment. Mm. So I imagine that has been particularly relevant during the pandemic and particularly Melbourne's lockdown. Mm. I imagine there were quite a few young people who were worried about poverty or homelessness, either for themselves or wanting to help other people. Did you see a spike in interest in your work during that time? Yeah, 100%. And we look at you know um, reports from the Productivity Commission of Australia saying that right now young people with bachelor's degrees um, we're better off in the global financial crisis in terms of employment prospects than they are now. So we're particularly looking at the gig economy in mm. these episodes. Does your work in any way utilise or um, think about the gig economy? 100%. Um, look, the gig economy is such an interesting grey area right now. To like, let's let's paint the picture first, right? Mm-hmm. We're currently in a global unemployment crisis. So, in ten years, two point eight million young Australians will need to be significantly reskilled, according to the Foundation of Young Australians. And so, we're talking about structural unemployment, where there's an innate lack of human or enterprise skills. And one of the biggest challenges of that is that those can't be taught from a textbook. And so, this presents a challenge. And the gig economy presents a massive opportunity because it allows young workers to actually gain real life experience, um, but also you know, understand the complexities of work in a fast paced environment. You know, um, a trend that happens particularly in gig work is that um, tasks are often more clear because employers put more effort into the job description because they want a specific job done quickly. You compare that to fixed work, which often ties young workers down a lot mm-hmm. because you know, they're already juggling trying to get straight A's, working part-time, trying to find an internship for graduation, navigating uncertainty, all whilst working in a system that works against them. And so the gig economy does really well in helping avoid some of these impacts. But then on the other hand, 
you have huge negative impacts from the gig economy as well. And I think you see like large corporates dodging bullets and often treating young people like disposables. And I think in order for us to really thrive in the workplace, we almost need to create a new social contract, if you will. Like a concept mentioned by uh, French entrepreneur Nicolas Collin, where he talks about you know, a contract where workers are actually covered to meet the new risk of today, um, like navigating the impossibility of affordable housing, for example. So tell us how would you see that, that new social contract playing out? What, what do you think that should look like? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's complex and it's not something that one person can answer. I think when we really want to think about the social contract, the first thing that we need to do is help workers actually understand what their rights are. Because right now it's a big gray area and we have, you know, an employment law, we have the national employment scheme, but even then um, the sort of structures that we have in place greatly disadvantage women and young migrants and young people. Um, And I think the other thing is we have to consult young people on the issues that they're facing. This doesn't happen a lot. Mm. Um, And it's an approach of co-design where you work with young people to solve issues for young people because the, these are the people who are at the core of that problem. Mm. So do you think the gig economy can be better than it is at the moment? There are a lot of negatives to it. You know, it's certainly been in the news a lot lately, you know, the awful deaths of Uber delivery drivers. Um, but then on the other hand, there it is also fulfilling a need that no other industry really is. Uh, when we went into lockdown in Melbourne, I, had, I, I knew a couple of people who um, – we're here as international students and they had previously been working doing like domestic cleaning, like cleaning houses and nannying. Once the pandemic hit, they lost all of that. None of that work was allowed to be done. And the only work they could get was Uber delivery. Mm. That we, It was that or nothing because the Australian government wasn't, there was no job keeper or job seeker for international students. Yeah. The gig economy seems to be the only thing stepping into a, a, a much needed market. But then of course it does it can be quite predatory as well if you are the only person or the only organisation that's serving a vulnerable community. What do we do? The gig economy is changing just as the future of work is changing. And so the way that we know the gig economy now is not how it's always going to be. I think with the influx of Industry 4.0 and manufacturing technologies changing everything, um, there will be a lot less uh, sort of gig work, I think, particularly in the delivery space as automation takes over mm-hmm. um, and what we know as what gig work is. Mm. And it will really go into tasks and roles that require more human skills. Like an example is uh, of good gig work is um, I used to work as an associate consultant at YLab where we put young people at the center of complex problems to design the future. And so I think particularly with gig work, what it does is, like you mentioned, it gives an influx of jobs where young people can actually get that real life experience and often work in a culture that allows for failures. Because mm-hmm. particularly when you have fixed work, right, you have to almost like assimilate into this new culture, you know, understand all the mindsets that are going into play and you have to play a long term game because you're almost like trying to hold on to your job as much as you can. What the gig economy does is it allows you to play with new areas and understand new employment opportunities without having to invest like your next two, three years into a permanent career. So how do we 
take the good stuff of the gig economy, the flexibility, jump right in, no long-term commitment required, and protect workers from the bad stuff, lack of adequate training, lack of proper insurance. How do we fix that model? How do we convince the organisations that create these great gig job opportunities and industries to provide all that great flexibility that you spoke about, but also to give workers the protection they need so they're not really exploited because that's going to cost them. Mm. And the reason they're in this is to make a huge amount of money. Yeah. I think um, for this sort of question, like it's it's almost like a systemic issue where we're, we're dealing with large corporates who, like you said, are using the gig economy because it's easier to exploit young workers. And I think where we have to begin is where we can make an impact. And that's actually helping young workers understand their rights first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Because, because it's such a gray area, because the NES in employment law doesn't really cover workers, um, we need to start with the workers themselves so that they understand what they're getting into. Mm. And I think that really starts with honest conversation and being really open about what the expectations, time commitments, and what to do in times of crises are. Mm. What do you think an ethical gig industry would look like? I think starting with having a workplace culture, which doesn't treat you as a disposable. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that you know the nature of the gig economy is that it's short-term work and it is casual employment, but your the workers' rights are actually protected. And so that thinks about safety, that thinks about well-being, um, that thinks about how someone fits into a workplace um, and, and really accommodates for diversity and inclusion there. And so, you know, like a really good example of someone who does that well is the Australian Network of Disability, mm-hmm. where they essentially link uh, graduates to gig-like internships or work. Um, And what they do really well is they actually co-design with young people with disabilities and the companies they're working into. Mm -hmm. And so, again, like it starts with that honest conversation around how might we help these young people without trying to make, I guess, decisions that don't inform them at all and don't ask them the problems that they're facing. Is part of the problem the profit? So I think for other industries where large profits can be made, uh, particularly the care industry, aged Mm. care, childcare, when they're assessed often, but not always, it's the for-profit models that are the worst to the people. When we start to have not-for-profit childcare, aged care, disability, that's actually when you see the highest level of care. What if some sort of savvy young entrepreneur developed the ethical Uber delivery, which paid drivers a reasonable wage because it's not taking a profits for itself and it's not skimming money off the restaurant owners either. It wasn't a for-profit model. Ethical consumers would feel that they'd much rather use that app than Uber or Deliveroo or the others that take, you know, take money for the restaurants and not don't give enough money back to the drivers because they're making a profit themselves. Is there a space for a not-for-profit Uber. And if there is, I would just like to say I came up with that idea and I am <laughs> trademarking it right it. now. Yeah, we'll, we'll go into that. partnership, Nathaniel. But seriously, do you think that could work? I mean, conceptually, 
like that would be a really great idea to have like some sort of ethical service. And I see particularly, you know, Generation Z mm. and millennials being increasingly aware of where they're putting their money and where that money goes to. And so, yeah, definitely like there would be heaps of people who would be willing to invest ethically into something that supports them. But I think the other thing that we think about in the gig economy or uh, let's start with the non-for-profit space. Like the other thing that we think about in the non-for-profit space is the lack of systems of support and funding. And so you're going into a market that's already saturated with basically monopolies or duopolies um, who are just taking all the market share. Um, and then you have to take into account like, you know, starting up, like this is sort of my startup background as well. Yeah. You know, starting up in a completely new environment and building trust, which is one of the biggest things ever. Because, you know, you can build the best product and service in the world. You can have the best mission behind it. If, but if nobody trusts you and you don't have a large consumer base, you won't be able to launch. And so I think in a practicality sense, it'll be very difficult for, you know, a non-for-profit player to jump into an existing service that already works. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the things we talk about in entrepreneurship is, you know, when you have customer discovery, there's, you know, you have a vitamin and a painkiller. So a vitamin is something that you can take every day. But if you miss once, it doesn't matter. But if you have a burning headache, you'll do anything to pay for the painkiller. And in this scenario, the non-for-profit like delivery service is great, but it's more of a vitamin because the existing problem is already being solved really well by Uber or other delivery services. Mm. So like it's an interesting divide where it's like, yes, there'd be a lot of interest, but in a practicality sense, how would the non-for-profit actually launch mm -hmm. and get to the stage where they can build the trust of an existing service. Nathaniel, thank you so much. No worries. <laughs> Jackie Alexander from Monash Art Design and Architecture got more than she bargained for when she began researching the impact of sharing economy platforms like Airbnb on the urban environment. Jackie tells us more about Melbourne's Monster House. Hi, my name is Jackie Alexander. I'm a senior lecturer at Monash University in the Architectures Department. And I'm also an architectural practitioner. I run my own architecture practice called Alexander Sheridan Architecture. Jackie Alexander, it is lovely to see you today. It's lovely to see you too, Susan. I want to hear about your research and particularly your research on the sharing economy in the built environment and urban design. What did you find out when you started digging into this area? It's been a pretty fascinating journey. I think... Um, when I started looking at the sharing economy, originally I was thinking about the sort of soft implications of the sharing economy and the way that behaviour was being changed through these digital platforms. Um, and so I started looking at the kind of um, activities of people within space, um, things like the distribution of people within space. I started looking into platforms like Airbnb, for example, and what impact they're having um you know one of the things that came out of this was looking at melbourne and looking at some of melbourne's housing towers and um seeing that a lot of them were being marketed to airbnb or as short-term letting platforms mm. and partly i was hypothesizing that this was to do with the fact that in melbourne we've had, had a building boom and a lot of the apartments that were going up were actually 
not designed particularly well and they were uh, very high yield uh, bedrooms that didn't have natural light, often maple storage space, often no outdoor space. And and so I think that they were intended to be marketed to the regular rental market but ended up finding themselves on platforms like Airbnb. Mm. And probably much more comfortable to occupy for a few days or short term as opposed to, you know, years at a time. Um, and I came across a bunch of towers in places like Spencer Street in Melbourne that were just overrun with Airbnb accommodation to the point where um, visitors were asking for the concierge at the, at the bottom of the towers. Um, because they, you know, they were assuming that they were staying in hotel accommodation. Mm. Um, so you're seeing these kind of very poorly designed apartments with up to eight people per uh, two-bedroom apartment, for example. Um, so lots of overcrowded living conditions. Um, and I think not just catering to tourists, but also catering to people like international students or temporary visa holders um, who maybe undertaking, um, you know, temporary work and that sort of thing as well. So it's having some interesting soft effects, but also some palpable effects on the, on the fat built fabric of uh, cities and buildings now as well. What are some of the um, potential disadvantages of the of the impact of these kind of buildings being used in this way to the broader society? Well, I think broadly speaking, there's a few different uh, problems that arise. I think the first thing is generally inequality. So we're seeing uh, the redistribution of people um, throughout the built environment and this kind of real inequality between the space that some people have access to and the space and the limited space that others have access to. So the pandemic has really revealed a lot of that sort of spatial inequality that's occurring. And I think the sharing economy has brought that to the fore a little bit because it is unregulated um, and that leads it open to exploitation and people trying to profit from it. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that's been really well documented internationally has been that... um, Platforms like Airbnb, because they're operating with um, leasing short-term rentals, they're often in cities competing with the regular rental market. So we see uh, the number of rental properties that are available in the inner city shrink and uh, citizens being pushed further and further out, and that's a really common thing. It's also common in Melbourne as well. So part of my research, Uh, one of the projects I was looking at was thinking about ways that we can potentially as architects and designers and urban planners think about a better use of Airbnb in cities like Melbourne where we might start to redirect the way that Airbnb Airbnb is used to incentivise Airbnb rentals in areas that are potentially not as overcrowded and there's not as much speculation already in the market. So moving away from the inner city um, Airbnb rentals and actually trying to be a bit more strategic about using or incentivising Airbnb as a sort of means to rejuvenate um, 
areas of the city that might benefit from um, higher densities or higher intensity or more economic injection that could be brought through that way. Could regulations or policy changes address this issue, make it work better for both the consumers but um, the people who live around these places that are used for Airbnb as well? I think it needs to and partly what my research has been about is from an architectural perspective because I'm an um, architectural practitioner and architecture academic, I've been thinking about Airbnb and these sorts of platforms um, that are connected to the use and access of buildings um, and what role architects might have as well in weighing in on the conversation because really it is a sort of spatial problem. Where the sort of problems that are proliferating um, are definitely spatial and as I said they're sort of affecting the distribution of people within space so is there are there ways that we could strategically um, approach this um, to start to address the inequities that are occurring in cities Um, and also you know address some of the inequities that are blatantly occurring in the built environment and the built fabric of cities so one example Susan that I was telling your colleague about was um, this house that I've found in inner city Melbourne, which is sort of seemingly purpose-built for Airbnb, and it's got 18 bedrooms and 18 bathrooms, and it's on a sort of average suburb, inner suburban block, um, and the whole thing's just basically rented on Airbnb year-round, every room individually listed, so up to sort of 36 people who probably don't know each other staying in the same house with an oversized kitchen, an oversized living room. And it's just nothing like anything you could ever imagine. It's this sort of hotel-house hybrid that sort of emerged seemingly to sort of tack in on um, these sorts of unregulated practices. And when you dig a bit deeper, you realise that um, this house has actually been built um, under the building code as a rooming house, mm-hmm. which means that it's probably, even though it's not um, housing the sorts of people that rooming house accommodation usually um, assists, and being, it's being totally marketed to sort of the tourist market, it's sort of basically masquerading as affordable housing. And often those types of accommodation don't need to go through the planning uh, permit process because they seem to be doing a kind of social good for huh. the community. So, and, and it's not, when I dug a bit deeper, I realised it wasn't a single oddity and that there's, you know, sort of several of these types of dwellings that have popped up in the same suburb. So it's really having quite tangible impacts. And I think those very architectural um outcomes that we're seeing really need to be engaged with by architects and design professionals because we can see that these digital technologies and infrastructures are having an impact with or without, you know, architects' involvement or planning uh, permission or regulation. So I think it's time that, you know, we started to pay attention to the, not only to the problems that are arising, but also the kind of opportunities that could potentially present if we went about this in a sort of designerly way 
with a little bit of um, forethought and imagination. That's the sort of work that I've been doing. 18 bedrooms. Yeah, 18 bedrooms. There is so much to unpack in that story because, first of all, 18 bedrooms is astounding. 18 bedrooms and 18 bathrooms. But (laughs) what I find particularly insidious about that story is not just the impact that building would have to be having on the local community around it, but that it was snuck in through a planning scheme that was designed for social good to sort of be able to house people who are quite vulnerable and needing Mm. assistance. Um, So it was sort of snuck through the process that way and then actually just used to rent seek essentially and take a lot of money off tourists or international students. Um, Definitely. And it is astounding to me that at no point a local council thought, hmm, I wonder if we should actually look at this, particularly – as you say, this is not the only one in that suburb. I know. It's it's quite uh, shocking, really, because when you think about it as well, this house is sort of capable of hosting about 36 people. So I think when you do the math, that works out to be about $12,000 per week in rent or about 14 times the average rental property in the suburb. And when I found this uh, house, I also realised that the same host has 81 other listings on Airbnb, which were not all monster houses, as I like to call them, but I think that they were individual rooms in similar kinds of properties. So I think there's obviously a level of exploitation and uh, sort of loophole seeking that's going on um, by some pernicious hosts. Um, And this is the sort of most dramatic example that I've seen. But you're right, it absolutely raises questions about equity um, and particularly, it's, you know, should we really be sort of closing down opportunities for people who are really struggling to access the housing market? Because probably there's also an assumption on some level that there's a certain quota of affordable or rooming, type, rooming house type arrangements that are available per yep. suburb or per... Uh, council, local council area. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. This would actually be working to keep the very people who most need it out of affordable yeah. housing because now another one can't be built on that street. There's the belief in that council that, well, now we have three of these buildings. Isn't that great? That's that issue taken care of. While the very small amount of available real estate that was available has now been taken away for a, high, a higher end product in terms of cost, which makes it even mm. harder for vulnerable people to find housing that they can get into. I know, it's it's very shocking. I mean, I've been trying, I've been deliberating over what what the role is or what the space of agency might be for sort of subverting this kind of thing or turning, you know, finding a positive in all of this. Um, and one of the things that I think, even though I'm sort of not really super willing to engage with some of these really unregulated practices, particularly these sort of global disruptors that have sort of inherently um, exploitative business models. (laughs) I think that there are some lessons that we can learn from what the sharing economy has delivered to us, which is this sort of flexible approach to rental that's been really good. One of the innovations that has come out of the sharing economy for buildings and space is that Um, 
platforms like Airbnb have sort of reimagined what rent can be. So you no longer have to rent at the scale of a idol or a sort of strata subdivision. You can rent a room or you can rent a bed within mm. a room. So there's this sort of incrementalizing, incrementalization of rent, um, both in terms of space but also in terms of time. So you don't no longer have to rent for a year. You can rent for a day, you know, an hour a day, a, a week, a month. And these things, I think, are inherently, you know, good. More flexibility is a good thing, but it's the exploitation of these things that is bad. So one thing that I'm starting to think about is if you can, if Airbnb and these sorts of platforms have decoupled the idea of tenancy and title, is there a way to then rethink housing so that, that there might be more flexibility within housing. So imagine a sort of an apartment development where there are no strata subdivisions within the apartment block and just one single title that the whole building is built on. Well, that would mean much more flexible use within the building. Occupants would be able to expand into other apartments um, on demand, as you can with the sharing economy, just by sort of clicking on a button and renting a, a, an adjacent room, more or less space, depending on their needs. But also, it would start to subvert this problem that we're having with the commodification of the built environment and speculation, because it's actually strata division um, within apartment blocks that enables apartments to be sold as asset and commodity. So if you're eliminating that and um, you're just keeping the strata title at the scale of the site, then effectively it could be a potentially uh, reformed model of rent, which takes the best bits, the flexibility of the sharing economy and applies it to local housing, um, but also sort of subverts this problem that we're seeing with this ultra commodification of the built environment um, to provide a much more affordable model of rent that's inherently flexible and potentially long-term for residents. So, yeah, I, I guess that's sort of maybe an illustrative example of, of where some of the design um, approaches might come into this, where we can sort of try to eliminate these really pernicious effects that the sharing economy is having on cities and buildings and try to flip it in some ways to create better outcomes. Jackie Alexander, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Susan. That's it for episode two on the gig economy. We'll catch you next time for our final episode where we capture practical tips, resources and advice from all our experts.